1: It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us.
0: Good morning, everyone. You are listening to Green Left Radio. And on the line we have myself, Jacob. Uh, Zane and Chloe as your um, lovely presenters to, um, today. Moin, um, moin. And- good morning.
3: Yes, we are lovely.
0: Yeah, so good. And um, I guess just to, before I announce what we have coming up on our program for Green Left Radio um, this on this fine Friday morning, or Well, will hope it's fine, we're recording this on a Thursday morning, but...
2: I think it's going it, to be rainy.
0: <laughs> oh, well, that's a bit of a shame because it's a very fine morning today. Now... Um, Before, I guess, I announce what we have coming up on the program, uh, I'd like to acknowledge uh, that Green Left uh, today is being broadcast to you from the Wondry uh, Nation, uh, the Wondry land of the Kulin Nation. Uh, I'd like to pay our respects to Elders past and present, acknowledge that this always was, uh, always will be. Aboriginal land and that Free CR and Green Radio supports, uh, the struggle for Aboriginal rights and sovereignty. Now, yeah, I would like, I guess, to announce, I guess, what we have coming up on the program. We're going to be having an interview with Pauline Galvin later, uh, who is the lead candidate for, uh, the South Ward for, the, as part of the Sue Bolton Morland team. And then we'll be having an interview with Jim and Coral, um, and, um, w- who have just recently, I think they've just recently, well, we're going to be, they get, they just recently went on a trip, um, to, okay, I guess a remote part of New South Wales, uh, which is currently being targeted, uh, by Santos to build, to um, build coal seam gas. So we're going to be talking a bit about, um, that. I think it's in the pillar, uh, in the northwest, South New South Wales.
4: And, and the
2: pillar. That- in okay, the pilligar
0: in Narrabah. In so yeah, we'll be having a bit of discussion about uh, the implications of that, and also how what Jim and Coral kind of witnessed in their um, recent visit yeah. there. Now, I guess I, what I guess to start off by talking a bit about a, a bit of a headline news story for this week's program, because I guess on Wednesday there was a bit of a. There was kind of a, it was a kind of funny news day, I thought, because it kind of started off with Scott Morrison, our prime minister promising, uh, making a number of promises. So basically the federal, um, the Scott Morrison government has basically paid for a potential vaccine, uh, from the Oxford College or some uh, in Oxford. And, you know, this vaccine is considered, uh, for COVID-19, obviously, because probably when we're talking about um, vaccines, we have to specify what it's going to be for. And it's, it's clearly, you know, it's been said to be one of the more promising kind of vaccines that is kind of in development. Now, Scott Morrison made a number of announcements regarding this vaccine. Uh, the first one was that they've paid for this potential vaccine that is being developed, one of the more promising kind of ones. The second one is this vaccine would be free. And then the third thing he kind of said was this vaccine will be made as mandatory as possible. Uh, I mean, of course, that sort of caused a bit of panicking amongst the sort of anti-vaccination community, although myself personally, I don't support mandatory vaccines as like a government policy uh, simply on the question of civil liberties. I think, you know, it has to be something that people voluntarily accept, although you would hope that... If a, uh, if a vaccine for COVID-19 was developed, that the majority would take it um, of, and and would hope that it was also safe and um, tested. Now, I guess a few problems with this, um, these whole ray of a kind of announcements by the Morrison government, I think there's a number of problems. The first problem is he made an announcement that this vaccine would be free, but the problem is there's actually no such thing as a COVID-19 vaccine. It's a, it was a hypothetical vaccine that might be developed in the future, and yet he's making a big media announcement about how this vaccine, this hypothetical COVID-19 vaccine is going to be free, which I think just comes off as almost like the federal government is just begging for media attention to make themselves seem like they're doing something when they've actually done nothing because there's actually, there's no vaccine to deliver because there's no vaccine. And in fact, the Scott Morrison government could have been making an announcement about how they're going to create jobs or uh, if, um, for in this COVID-19 pandemic, we're going to be doing big public investment. We're going to be, you know, giving, full paid pandemic leave for everyone in Melbourne. Like, no, no. He he the main announcement he wanted to make was a hypothetical vaccine would be free. So I think, yeah, there's just a lot of I think wrong with this whole track of the media um just jumping on this. Because yeah, there's no such thing as a COVID nineteen vaccine. And then of course on this whole question of making the vaccine mandatory, it got even funnier because Basically Scott Morrison then later backtracked on those comments, uh, about the vaccine being mandatory, which yeah, it's like he made a bold claim and then had nothing to back it up. So yeah, I just thought that was a, I just wanted to kind of note this for the radio, um, for the program this week that yeah, that was just a ridiculous day in, um, in government PR and media uh, and media. Yeah. I
2: think. He's obviously foreshadowing that if there is a vaccine, if one does become available, which we can, uh, hopefully one does become available at some point, he seems to be pretty clearly foreshadowing that it will be provided free. So that's at least, uh, a good thing. Um, but yeah, this whole mandatory vaccination thing is pretty, um, questionable. And as you say, I think as, as with the lockdown measures, Really, I think it's it's got to be something that there's a constant public education and people are won over to the idea that these things are necessary to protect ourselves and the people that we love, rather than you know the government is forcing you to do this. You're going to be fined ten thousand dollars if you don't. You're going to be put in jail, etc. Because ultimately getting that vaccine, as long as it's been tested and it's proven safe, it's in your own interest. So it shouldn't be that hard to convince people of the benefits of it. And yeah, there's anti-vaxxers out there, but you're not going to, you're not going to undermine and, and kind of diminish the um, social weight and standing of the anti-vax movement with or like authoritarian kind of um, forcing people to get vaccinations. The way to, to undermine that is get back to basics and say, here is why we do vaccinations. They work. They are proven by science. And if you don't have them, you could die.
0: Just to be a bit of a pessimistic, um, we're probably going to be waiting a a while before a vaccine gets developed uh, because um, developing vaccines takes a lot of time. In fact, as far as I know, I don't have the correct accurate number on me, but there's somewhat up to, over a 100 vaccines in development. Now, the main issue is um, most vaccines will pass the first two stages of trials, but most of them won't get through the stage three. And, of course, that stage three is when it can be considered ready for distribution because, you know, when having uh, a, a something that is going to be delivered to the majority of the population, it's not like some kind of drug where you can accept a certain level of side effects With a vaccine, you have to accept um, the number of side effects you have to accept is very minimum. And, of course, within existing vaccines, there's also a lot of vaccines that can't be delivered to people who might have immune-compromised systems or might have pre-existing health conditions. So those are all kind of, all those complexities are all things that scientists and medical professionals um, have to grapple with and, and, yeah, um, have to be specific and say that, we're probably going to be waiting quite a long time for a COVID-19 vaccine. It's not like um, waiting for a video game to get developed. It's much a much more complicated kind of process. Okay, I might just go, I'll just quickly play, I guess, a quick announcement, um, and then we might, I guess, move on to uh, the next part of the
3: program.
1: Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today
0: You are listening to Green Left uh, Radio, and for our program today, um, we're very happy to have we'll, to have Coral Winter and Jim McElroy um, in on not in the studio, but on the line today. Um, they have recently returned from a trip to the Pilbara, um, where they drawed a car convoy uh, through the forest uh, and visited kind of various kind of coal seam gas drilling sites and spillage areas. To give a bit of a kind of background, um, there's an ongoing campaign uh, in New um, in New South Wales uh, against um, Santos's plans, and Santos is planning to drill over 850 coal seam gas wells in the iconic. Econ- Piliger Forest in Northwest New South Wales. The gas project, which is currently being assessed by the New South Wales Independent Planning Commission, uh, is a threat to the forest itself and to the future of the planet because gas is a dangerous kind of fossil fuel. So I guess we have Jim and Cole on here to give a bit of background. And I may maybe I guess a bit of to start off, can you give a bit of background on this whole issue, uh, especially to someone who might have not heard? Uh, about what Santos is kind of planning to do to the um to the iconic kind of pilgrimage forest in new northwest new south wales
4: okay i'll I'll speak to that um Jacob. um well what happened is uh, to go back to the very beginning i mean people have forgotten maybe that um in not- 2010 um dark energy was going to um frac Peters, a suburb of um, Sydney. It's only six kilometres from CBD. And so that alerted a lot of people in Sydney to what was going to happen. And they had, Dart Energy had a licence to frack 60% of New South Wales. So that was when all this sort of started way back in 2010. And we launched a campaign. We educated ourselves about coal seam gas and about unconventional fracking. And so we were able to stop it with a massive campaign. So, um, Santos has had this, um, uh, um, campaign or, 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 or struggle or fight to frack, um, it's Narrabri and the Pilligah Forest between Narrabri and, um, Coonabarabran. And what happened is they tried to get a whole lot of farmers up there to be able to frack on their land, but they locked the gate, had campaigned against, um, had educated farmers and, and the local people up there. In northwestern, um, New South Wales about the dangers of coal seam gas and what had happened up in the Piliga. Uh, sorry, up in, um, uh, in, in Queensland, in, um, Chinchilla. And so, uh, they launched a massive campaign. So everybody became educated about, uh, what coal seam gas would do to their farmlands and the dangers and, you know, and all the problems. So then what happened was the, um, Santos applied to get, um, uh, frack the Pilliger Forest, which is this huge, I thought, I think it's about a hundred thousand, um, hectares, a huge temperate forest, um, the largest temperate forest left on the eastern coast of Australia, um, with, um, uh, uh all sorts of wonderful plants, trees, and, um, also endangered spe- um, species of um, mouse and bats and, um, and it's also a, a habitat for koalas. And, um, and so, um, involved in and this is a lot of corruption because John Anderson of the, um, country party, he had, um, he had big shares in a, in an oil gas company up there and he sold this, this to Santos for something like, um, hundred six hundred million dollars some incredible amount of money which he would have got a huge cut um to like to um a license to frack the pilliger so that's where it all started and we've been fighting it since then this would be if they get permission to go ahead with this this would be the first time in um 19 years i think that they've been able to um to is it 19 years uh that so the first time in 19 years that such a project had been given permission to go ahead. So at the moment, what's happened is that it went to the Department of Planning and Environment and Heritage, in New South Wales, and they gave the go-ahead for it with a really, um, um, really deficient report on on the whole situation, and the um, we were taking not into account any of the environmental desecrations that this would cause and a whole lot of other things. And because of that it was then sent by the New South Wales Liberal government, Veradiclian, to the um, Independent Planning Commission, which uh, to hear to have hearings about uh, what whether it should proceed or not. And so in the end of July they were allowed five days for submissions from people uh, to to make their um complaints about this project. And they got an overwhelming number of, of, of written submissions, 24,000. It's the largest number of submissions ever um, given into an independent planning commission hearing, plus over 400 oral submissions. And so they had to extend the hearing from five days to seven days because there were so many applications. And um, and then because of the overwhelming, I'll, I'll go into that a little bit later. The overwhelming 98% of the submissions were against the proposal. Um, they, then Santos, who had put in such a, a weak and poor uh, analysis and, and submission on the, on the project, they then submitted a, a whole new um, pro, um, uh, sort of proposals with a, with, a few, with a few changes after the submissions had closed to the IPC. So now they've opened up again. Uh, for and to give the community a chance to reply to santos's new document and um that's where it stands at the moment they 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 will make a decision in about the end of the uh, end of September when it was supposed to come out like at the beginning of september, so that's where it stands at the moment
0: yeah well the kind of next question I guess I want to ask is um i guess keep what can you tell us I guess about your recent kind of strip um to the, um, to the Pillar Guy and I guess what you kind of learned from that.
5: Okay, yeah, um, uh, thanks, Jacob. Um, we, it was a real eye-opener going up to, uh, we, we went up by train to Narrabri and, um, it's interesting to see the, the, the difference. I mean, let's face it, the, the country areas now are divided on the question of not only gas, but coal mining. Because, um, Narrabri town itself, I think, uh, there's, a, there's quite a strong support in the town for Santos because Santos is in a bogus fashion, just like a darning in Queensland saying there's going to be all these jobs created for locals and that is rubbish. It's not going to happen. Um, most of the labor brought in will probably be FIFO brought in anyway, but, um, we also went. So the Pilliga Forest is basically between it's both sides of the Newell Highway in uh, northwest New South Wales, and then at the south is Coonabarabran, which is another um, sort of country town, which is pretty well overwhelmingly against the um, uh, the the, the Pilige, uh, um digging up of uh, of coal by by Santos. Because they see it as a threat. And what what has happened is that a large number of farming uh, communities have come out against it and are strongly against it. And that's what we're seeing all over the, over the country, including in Queensland where it's gone furthest of all. Um, and in addition to that, uh, the Aboriginal community has taken a stand strongly against um, Santos because they see the destruction of the Peligar Forest is, is going to be Terrible for the forest, but also for so many of the uh, sacred sites that they have in the forest. And we did get to see some of that. I'll, you can say something more about that later. So, what happened was we, we basically hired a four wheel drive and, and, drove through the, through the um, area and visited various sites. And there's a really good, um, uh, uh little place called Pilliger Pottery where, where I recommend people to go. Because the woman there, Maria Rickett, who is, who is interviewed in the Greenleaf Weekly a couple of weeks ago. I urge people to look up the website. Um, she's strongly against it and the community is against it. The Pilliger Forest is a, is an ancient forest. It's Australia has destroyed, I think it's something like well over two thirds of its forests already since the white, uh, like colonial authorities have arrived in this country, we've we've pretty well wiped out large amounts of the forest. But um, Pilliga is interesting. It's not like it's a temperate forest. It's not a rainforest. It's, it's and when you look at it, I'm sure some of the um, supporters of Santos will say, well, that's a straggy looking place." But the trees are, uh, you know, quite different and unique to that particular area. It's a huge area. And we managed to get on a car convoy organized by two of the local activists, um, Dan Lanzini from the Northwest Protection Advocacy and also, uh, Cody, councillor Cody Brady, who's an Indigenous a man from the local area who's taken a very strong stand against, uh, Santos. So yeah, the trip, um, we took through the forest was, Extremely interesting. We saw some of the sites. We saw what's going to happen with the, um, the, the uh, drill sites where, where they're going to have flares on stands, which are going to be sort of like a hundred meters in the air. Uh, they'll be on top of towers. Um, it's apart from anything else, among other things, it's a fire danger on top of the normal fire danger we're seeing with the drying up of the forest. Um, having these flares, uh, is going to be a massive, um, Threat. The, the the flares have also caused controversy because in the Warrumbungal Mountains, which are uh, another unique area, uh, just uh, sort of south of uh, of Kurramandra, of uh, sorry the um, Kunawarra um we have the Siding Spring Telescope, which is a very unique part of a worldwide network of, of scopes, which plays a crucial role. And some scientists from that facility have warned that the the light from these flares could in fact endanger the whole work of the Siding Spring Observatory which would be a terrible loss from a scientific point of view but also even from the local uh, community point of view because something like um, you know half the jobs in the Coon and Bra- area are related to that um, that facility yeah so um, we we traveled through the Forest, and we saw the sites. We saw spill sites where the, where the, the toxic waste from the coal seam gas, which is one of the issues they don't really tackle, um, has already. But you can see with your own eyes that the that the forest and the the undergrowth there is 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 poisoned. And and uh, uh, Dan Dan and Cody uh, Cody showed us uh exactly the poisoned areas and how the the, the uh, Santos was trying to grow back new new undergrowth but it was it was it was dying immediately and these these poisoned areas are growing there are also um yeah uh, large storage dams which are also going to be toxic so yeah apart from the fact that coal seam gas itself we don't need it economically we don't need it and certainly from the point of view of combating climate change we certainly don't need it um it is causing a massive destruction of the forest
0: i oh, sorry, say following on from that um what can you i guess tell what can you tell us about the campaign uh, against um building um coal seam gas in in the pilbara um like what who are the forces that are involved um what about like the role of of first nations activists
4: well there's um Two main groups. There's uh, Lock the Gate, um, who are organising it from sort of um, the ur- urban areas and be- building a big campaign in um, the whole eastern coast of Australia. Um, and then there's also the Northwest Alliance, um, who are organising it from the in the local area, the local farmers and the um, local um, Gamilaroi First Nations people. Um, they had a whole week during the uh, IPC hearing, they had a whole week in which they hired the um, bowling club up at Narrabri uh, to inform people what was going on and a, a centre for sort of activists to go to. Um, so it's, it's a huge campaign and um, there's a, a lot of people involved, a lot of um, experts and um, uh, in, from the universities, hydrologists, um, Farmers and um, agricultural experts and um, organic farmers. Um, so it's what it's done is this campaign has actually, for the first time, joined together the um, the Aboriginal people and the farmers, as well as the um, city and the uh, country areas. It's it's been able to bring together, you know, those those three three groups for the first time. So it's a very Active campaign, um, and even there's a lot of pressure on the RPC to um, to to go ahead to give the go ahead for this for Santos to to drill in the Pilbara forest uh, under pressure from the Liberal governments in um, Morrison, as well as the Country Party, and as well as um, the New South Wales Liberal government, very But um, there's a massive campaign by um, the communities both country and city, against this. So um, even if the um, IPC gives the go-ahead, there will be a reaction to this and there will be an ongoing campaign to try and stop it by all sorts of means. I mean, the main thing I should also emphasize it hasn't been brought out is the danger to the Great Artesian Basin. The Pillica Forest is where is a massive recharge area for the um, Great Artesian Basin, which covers... Two a third of the Australian continent. It is massive, um, and it's this water that farmers rely on for to to do any sort of farming up in northern um, um, New South Wales, because that whole area is really really dry. They can only survive because of the Great Artesian Basin, and the danger is that this the coal seam gas mining will contaminate that huge um, volume of water. Um, uh, and so it'll make it unusable. You know, this, this, the Great Artesian Basin is the largest in the world and it's, um, it's, it's probably taken millions of years to form. And what's happened over the last 150 years that's under colonization is that, um, those ball waters were just allowed to, to run continuously. They weren't even capped. It's only been the last few years they've capped them to control the volume. So, the whole Great artesian basin has been depressurized, and what 's happened is we 've lost uh, the woman, uh, one of the speakers at the IPC um, from the um, from Dubbo talked about how we 've lost a thousand natural springs in New South Wales because of the depressurization already by the mining companies um, so this will be uh, you know a further disaster so the disaster is the Contaminated contamination of the of the Great Artesian Basin and um, loss of water because they will have to use millions of liters of water from the Great Artesian Basin to continue with this. So it's a it's a massive campaign and a whole lot of lives are dependent on a whole lot of livelihoods up in um, Western um, New South Wales are dependent on stopping this project. It's it's um, a really important big issue here. Hmm.
0: Well, Chloe, you want to ask
3: a oh, Can I just ask a, a quick question if you, in case you haven't covered it? If the uh, New South Wales Independent Planning Commission does approve the unconventional gas project, uh, like you mentioned, Coral, it would be the first unconventional gas project to go ahead in 19 years. I just wanted to know um, what the impact on First Nations people would be. Uh, and you did mention in your article, you know, that First Nations people were able to live in the Great Desert of Central Australia for more than 65,000 years, uh, because of the health of the great artisan basin. So I just wanted to, maybe you could touch on that. Thanks. Um,
4: well, it's, um, the Gamilaroi people have been fighting this since 2013. They directly asked Santos to come and talk to them. There were some wonderful, um, expositions on the, on the, at the hearings by Gamilaroi, um, traditional owners who you know explain the situation it's got a lot of um burial sites there and we actually visited um through Cody and Dan Lanzini we visited a site where they um told us that these were scar trees where um and the mark at the bottom of the tree indicated that that was where uh, an aboriginal uh, first nations aboriginal person was buried and also but they'd cut out also um Parts of the tree for, to make, um, kulamons, the, what, what, they carry their seeds in. And also there was even one there for a, a boat. Because what we realised, they took us to this place where, um, it was just the last sort of lagoon left. And I, I imagined it was going to be a large sort of lake area, but it was just this tiny piece of puddle of water where there's still a few, um, of the, uh, shells left that they used to Eat the the um, uh, shellfish, and um, and that that used to be that was a, a bed of a river, and there used to be a river connecting these two parts of the forest, running right through it. It'd always be a river there that they used to use boats to to go up and down. It would have been a paradise. So um, the Gamilaroi people, especially um, Dolly, I think her name was Dolly uh, Dolly. Um, uh, I can't find the, her name, last name. It was, um, oh, Dolly Talbot, you know, talked so movingly about um, the, what it would mean to the Gumilaroi people. They've got sacred sites up there. There's some of these beautiful sandstone caves in which they would have lived under, and there's all these cavings there and um, where they would have also made tools that you can visit. There's also a whole ring of um, sculptures that have been made recently or in the last, you know, five years. Um, there that people visit. There's a whole, um, you can go and visit a, uh, at, at Barradine. You can go and visit the Pilliger Forest Discovery Centre, which goes through a lot of the history. But, um, yeah, they have not, cons- Sandals have not consulted the Gamilaroi people. They've even, as, um, Dolly Talbot pointed out, they've even ignored the New South Wales Heritage and, um, Native Title Act, um, and, in, and in, in, in pushing this, um, project to go ahead. They've ignored their own laws and have not consulted the Gamilaroi people at all. Um, they've got a lot of um, there's other sacred areas there that are women's business and men's business and they can't talk about that in on a in sort of a written procedures. They they need sort of an oral presentation. That's their tradition. So it's very hard for them to defend uh their their um, their rituals and their rights and explain it to sort of bureaucrats. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a very, very important area for the Millerite people and they've been fighting it since 2013 and, um, have got nowhere with Santos nor with the New South Wales government. I don't know if that answers your question or not. <laughs>
3: yeah. No, it did. Thanks. Thanks, Carl.
4: Um, the next question
0: I want to just sort of ask is I kind of want to hear your comments on the government's COVID kind of 19 recovery plan, um, which is going which is being rolled out by the federal government, um, by their so-called national COVID-19 coordinating committee. And it's based entirely on public handouts to the corporate, uh, gas sector. I kind of want to hear your comments on that, especially in relation to this ongoing struggle, uh, to protect the bushland of the Pillager.
5: All right. Yes. I think this is really important. We, we must see the, the, the struggle against Santos and the Piliga in the context of what's happening nationally. And there's a very good article in the current Green Left Weekly, I should mention, which is headed Gas Recovery Formalises Corporate Rule. And really, this is what we're talking about. The federal government has brought in the so-called COVID Commission, which is supposed to oversee plans for Quotes recovery from the COVID crisis, and they're focusing on gas. So the question of of uh, these new gas projects that are uh, being uh, pushed, actually not just in the Pilbara, not just in New South Wales, but around the country. Is actually a critical, uh, issue for, for, um, both economically, but also around the climate because there's a complete myth. They're pushing, um, the myth through this COVID commission. Somehow gas is a so-called transition fuel away from, um, coal, which is, you know, the, the key fossil fuel. Um, somehow it's a transition fuel towards, uh, full renewables, but is totally incorrect because, um, um while gas when it burns does produce less carbon dioxide than um, coal it's it's something like um uh 60% more i think the figure is uh, uh it's it's creates methane not only in the in the production but in the in the um, not not only in the production because there's methane uh, so called fugitive emissions but also in the production of uh, of the uh power so um, I think we what we're looking at with the struggle in the Lepilaga is really an iconic struggle, which is at the forefront of the whole struggle we're going to have to launch nationally. Now, look what's happening around the country. In the Northern Territory, there's supposed to be a ban on um, fracking for gas. But that 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 ban is being lifted, and in fact, there's an election coming up, which um, both sides of politics, Labor and the Lib- and the Country Liberal, are uh, supporting the idea of lifting the ban. So the Aboriginal people in Northern Territory are, are really standing up and uh, opposing that. Um, in New South Wales, we've got the federal. We've got a question mark in Victoria at the moment as to what's happening, and in Western Australia, you've got. Um, you know, the mining companies going berserk and not only, um, gas, but of course, um, iron ore and coal. So, and then of course we've got the Adani, uh, project. So we've got, um, a really critical point coming out of this COVID crisis to get back on the streets and get back campaigning as we, as we have in the past around the whole question of Australia being something like the top Producer of, um, of greenhouse gases in the world per capita. Um, we've got to do something about it. We've got to also link up the, the struggle against coal, which is, you know, particularly the question of Adani in Queensland, but also Whitehaven coal is, has just got to go ahead, um, not far from where the Pillager is. So remember, there's massive coal production in the Hunter Valley and in the upper Hunter and all the way up. To, um, Boggabry and so on, but the gas is now being presented and it's being falsely presented to the Australian people as though it's some kind of alternative to coal and then it'll trans, it'll be a transition to, to full solar and, um, wind and other greenhouse, uh, uh neutral, uh, me- methods of producing energy. So yeah, I think this national COVID commission, it's completely stacked with, um, Pro gas uh, people. I mean, Nerve Power, the uh, the head of it was until very recently the head of um, one of the key. Uh, he was head of actually a, a gas company called Strike Energy. So because of the controversy, he was forced to resign formally. But this doesn't alter the fact. If you look at the personnel, a lot of them are from gas companies, and um, so yeah, I think we're we're looking at. Uh, a major struggle which the Pilger is probably like a spearhead uh part of uh, uh, against the rise of gas as the so-called alternative fuel so i'll just mention that um, now the in the the decision of the independent planning commission in new south wales about santos is going to be a critical point they have now delayed their um decision until the end of September, it was originally going to be September 5, I think it was, now it's September 30. Um, Santos panicked because 98% of the, the submissions to, to the commission were adamantly opposed to it. And the evidence, not only from the community and from Aboriginal groups, green groups and farmers was so strong, but the technical arguments against it, the fact that there's a bogus argument in New South Wales that somehow Santos will reduce gas prices to consumers in the city. This is absolute rubbish. It's not going to happen. Um, and in fact, uh, Santos did not even succeed in putting that argument very strongly. So they they sort of appear to have panicked and put a last minute submission in, which is, you know, raising the so called numbers of the of the arguments in favour of of their proposition. But the Commission, fortunately, also decided to extend it because they said, well, people have to have a chance to reply. So we're going to see quite a lot of um, opposition now coming from experts and from the community um, to refute this latest attempt by Santos to shore up its very, very weak case. Um, so, yeah, uh, watch this space. The struggle uh, around the pillagers is probably going to be one of the critical uh struggles probably along with Adani um in the next uh few months.
0: Okay. Um well I guess we'll maybe um conclude this interview. Do you have any guests' final comments um you would like to kind of make?
5: Well i oh, yeah like and
0: don't even talk about the forum you're gonna be speaking at next Tuesday actually about this whole issue.
5: Yes, that's that's what uh Jacob what I was ho- uh, hoping to just uh Give some publicity to your, your listeners that, so um, next Tuesday night, 6.30 Eastern Standard Time, uh, Coral and I will be speaking and showing a slideshow about our trip to the Narra, to Narrabri and to the Pilliga. Uh, but also we have a feature guest speaker, um, uh, Bronwyn Evans, who's a knitting nana and we shouldn't, uh, finish up with that mentioning the role the Vanguard role of the knitting nanas. People will have probably seen them in the media. They're dressed in the yellow uh oh. beanies or black black and yellow and they um <laughs> in Sydney, they are they are they have little groups all over the place, the Illawarra, Sydney, Newcastle and up in the north and um well, round the country as far as I'm aware. But um they until COVID, they actually For a number of years, every Friday, they would be in Martin Place here in Sydney and getting signatures on their petition. And they have been absolutely staunch in campaigning against, um, well, not only Santos in the but the whole, the whole gas industry as a whole. So, uh, Bronwyn Evans, one of the, uh, members of Knitting Nanas here in Sydney will be, uh, also speaking at the forum. So it's the Green Left Forum please look it up on Facebook. It's uh, Tuesday 25th of August at 6.30. Uh, There's a Facebook event which will give you the Zoom connection. Uh, And it should be really interesting. We're expecting to have um, a number of people who will be contributing in discussion uh, about this important struggle.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for that, Jim. And I guess just for listeners information, if you go on the Green Left Facebook page or the Green Left website, greenleft.org.au, uh, you should be able to find details for this upcoming forum on the Pillager, which is next Tuesday by Zoom, uh, at 6.30 PM. All right. Now I just want to, um, I'll just quickly Um, play a quick announcement and then we'll move on to the rest of our program Uh, but thank you very much Jim and Coral for being part of the program this week.
5: Hey all you mob it's Dr Mark Winnetong here. Coronavirus has certainly changed the way we live work and connect. These changes can be hard for some of us and can make us feel no good in our head or spirit like sad or worried all the time. Some of us might already be dealing with other things like sickness, trauma, and this can make it really hard for us to feel good about anything at the moment. If you're feeling like this, remember, it's okay to ask for help. Have a yarn to someone you trust, like your family or an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health worker. You can also call Beyond Blue, Lifeline or the Kids Helpline to talk to someone or look at some helpful information at headtohealth.gov.au on the
1: internet. A 3CR supporter.
0: On the same time, there's going to be another online forum, Save the Pillar Gar from Santos Gas Plans, um, the same forum that we advertised in the earlier interview. That's happening at 6.30 Tuesday, 25th August, and you can find the details of the Zoom link on at the Green Left um, um, Facebook page or the Green Left website. There'll be an online forum, how the North East Link Toll Road will affect you, they will be happening on Thursday, the 27th of August, 7.30pm. Join us for a forum with experts, community members and local activists to find out how the North East Link will affect you. And you can probably find the details for that on the Green Left website as well. And the next event I'd like to announce is the online film fundraiser, Stingray Sisters, um, which is going to be happening on Friday, the 28th of August, 6.30pm. Uh, um, and you can... If you would like to come along to it, you can book your ticket at trybooking.com forward slash B-K-Y-I-J. And um, it's going to be a fundraiser for the Sue Bolton-Morland team standing in the October Council elections. Um, but yeah, I might just... Um Resolved, um, we might just tie up the activist colour quickly and I'll just play a quick announcement and we'll go on to the next part of the programme, which is going to be an interview with Pauline Galvin.
1: You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3CR.org.au or on 3CR Don't Digital in Melbourne. Thinking, get all up in just...
0: Everyone. You are listening to Green Left Radio and on the line today we have, um, we're very happy to have Pauline Galvin, um, in, with us today. I usually say in the studio, but there's no studio because of, uh, co- the COVID-19 pandemic. And Pauline Galvin is, has been a long time community activist and she is currently going to be running for local council um, for the Sue Bolton Morland team for the Moreland City Council. And she is the lead candidate um, for the South Ward um, in Moreland, which covers um, all of Brunswick, um, Brunswick West and Brunswick East. Well, not all of Brunswick because parts of Brunswick are actually part of the North East Ward. But, yeah. And so we have um, – we're – we're going to have Pauline in, um, on today to have a bit of a discussion about, um, her council election campaign, why she is running for council, uh, maybe a bit of a discussion about some of the political issues, um, that she is passionate about. And I guess maybe to start off, um, Pauline, I guess I want to start off with, um, the question, start off the discussion with why you, um, as a, I guess, as you're a community kind of independent and Sue Bolton Morland team is, uh, is a team that's uh, of Social science members and community independents. Uh, why is it that you have decided to run for local council with the Sue Bolton-Morland team?
6: Uh, good morning, Jacob. I think one of the main reasons I'm standing with the Sue Bolton-Morland team is I have a real huge amount of respect for the work of Sue Bolton and how she has been on the council I also have quite strong I guess socialist leanings you might say I've always described my political colours as green and red so I've always had a very strong envir- interest in environmental issues like all my life and I've had a very strong uh social uh perspective social uh, understanding of the importance of us working together to look after all of us that comes from that socialist political persuasion whilst ever not actually being as so interested in party politics that I have joined either any of those political parties. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a combination of in, interest and respect for what Sue has done and just an ongoing, that's, that green and red is, is really my political background, my political interests.
0: And can you tell us a, a bit more about, I guess, about some of the political interests and I guess, and some of the issues I guess you're passionate about? I mean, maybe some of the political issues you might be hoping to sort of run on in terms of uh, the local council.
6: So, one of the, the big things that has been on um, our political agenda as a country, as well as my political agenda, is, is climate emergency. And one of the things that, so I've been involved in um climate campaigning for quite a few years now and it it really there's so many threads to the climate emergency that we are in at the moment uh, i've been involved with some of the forest campaigning uh climate justice issues um so lots of threads of those of which aren't necessarily council issues. But one of the things about that has been become apparent over the last few years is that actually cities is where the council is where climate action is happening. Countries tend to like, oh, we don't know what to do. We've got all these international um, agreements that we're just ignoring. The states are like, oh, we can't afford to to put our gas things out, you know, fossil fuel issue. Um, work at uh, at risk but actually councils are the ones that are actually doing the work with the people to actually reduce their carbon footprint so cities particularly internationally cities are really where the the carbon um, and climate action action actually is it's been really very interesting
0: so I guess, um, Pauline, I mean, talking, I guess, uh, about um, climate issues, uh, I understand that you've had um, a lot of involvement in a lot of um, different campaigns um, over the years. In fact, you've been part of Climate Action Moreland. And I guess from my understanding, you were also involved in the campaign to stop uh, the East-West Link. And I guess I want to hear a bit more from you, uh, a bit of reflection on, I guess, what are some of your kind of experiences that you've been involved in in terms of being an activist over the years?
6: Yeah, I would say that the East-West Link Action was the first thing that I really became active about. I remember just opening this news, being a, actually I went away for with some friends and we were talking about political stuff and, and the importance of responsibility and, and what an individual can do. And I got home and opened this newspaper and there was just this spread about what the East West Link and what that was going to do to my city. Like it's greater Melbourne, but it's my city. And I was just outraged and like, not on my watch. And so I got involved and I knew a number of people that were were active in this, in that campaign, Um Uh, It's where I first met Sue Bolton, was involved through the East-West Link and actually met her on the picket line. Um, And such an experience of when concerned citizens get together and actually get organised, what is possible? And it's that... The mass of people, but there's also all the links that those people have. So that that person knows that person who can talk to that person who knows that person, and suddenly you're getting a lot more political reach than just concerned of Coburg writing another sternly worded letter to the the, the newspaper or a politician. So when you actually get people together. That is when magic happens, really. And that's the strength of, um, a community campaign. So it was just about, you could just do what you could do. You, there was a picket line, but I don't, I'm sure somebody, people turned up every morning, but I went down one or two mornings a week because that's what I could do. And it's just, you had such a breadth of people that were each doing a little bit. It was really inspiring and, um, so part of that we got to, got involved with other people in Moorland who were interested in the same issues. One of the interesting things about transport is it's a really, it's a system. It's all these different things that are brought together to work together. And the transport is such a climate change, such a climate emergency issue because I think cli- uh, transport is like the second most uh, in terms of energy, carbon footprint of, of what we, we use. And so it's such an important thing for us to address. And yet our governments just keep building more and more mega roads. It's just ridiculous. We're just putting in all this infrastructure. We're spending all this money that we could be spending on so many more better things for the community, better things for if it's, you know, employing people, let alone getting stuff that's actually got a good outcome. But no, we pour all these billions and billions of dollars into buying something that is going to make the situation worse. It's just ridiculous and just become and the state government, I'm afraid, is still doing that. They're doing it with the Northeast link. It's the same problem pouring billions of dollars into something that will make the situation worse. And there's the uh, so there's a lot of people, a lot of, that, um, have been working on public transport issues in and around Moorland. A lot of people that are working on climate and, uh, climate emergency issues all around Moorland. And that, uh, intersection, that buffer where those two groups meet is just a really interesting place to be involved and in, a place to, um, you, you, it's a very fertile um, place to be working. So that's really, um, I found that really inspiring to get involved in that. Lots of reasons to actually target transport. Um,
0: yeah. Well, I think that all, that sounds, that, um, I guess, what I'm kind of interested in, you know, following on from um, from everything you kind of said there is, I guess, what, like, terms of, like, um, what are the types of, like, in terms of how did your politics kind of change in response to that experience of being involved in uh, the East-West Link campaign?
6: So I guess it was mostly a, um, as a get out there and get involved response, uh, so that the politics personal is always political and that sort of thing so I've always been quite aware of politics and party politics but I guess kind of figured somebody else would actually work out what was the the best thing to do and then that would just magically happen because democracy and what I guess I found out that was really apparent is just how much the machinations of party politics is about Putting the agenda of the party, any whichever party is in power, because a lot of parties do it, um, rather than actually looking as what's the best outcome for the community, mm-hmm. and so that I think was probably the thing that was the biggest change for me. I kind of went from a bit of a naive. Side of well people will politicians will work out what 's the right thing, obviously, when they learn enough, and then they will do the right thing yay that 's how it works isn 't it and that that you know I realized that that was not the case, and then unless you get people out there being squeaky wheels that the right thing isn 't going to happen the, the what 's going to happen is the thing that is most convenient for the people that are in power. And whether that's to get more votes or whether that's to big up their faction or make lots of money for their political mates and donors, who knows what that is, but it's very rarely actually for the benefit of the community and, and the actual outcomes that generations will have to live with. And that's one of the things that really got me. It was like, we are doing stuff now that we know is stupid and people for the next 10, 20, 50 years are going to go, man, that was stupid. Why did they do that? And we know that now and we, I don't understand why people continue doing the stupid things. But if people like me don't get up there and actually go, no, this is really terrible outcome for these reasons, then the, the terrible things still happen. You need people like me to be out there and actually speaking up and fronting up and saying, this isn't good enough. We want better outcomes. We need the vulnerable people in our community to be to be looked after. We don't need more mega roads. We need public housing. There's so many things that we could be doing with the money that we're pouring into uh mega roads that we could be, even if, like, we could put, decent public transport in we could put in like actually so many things we could do with that money
0: yeah um thanks for that um pauline i guess the next kind of question that kind of flows about um flows out of that is the sue bolton morland team is running on this slogan of um community need not developer greed um and i guess i want to kind of hear a bit about from yourself about you know what you think about that kind of slogan and what it kind of means to you, especially in terms of this uh, of this upcoming um, the upcoming kind of council elections?
6: There has been a lot of development all over Moreland, and the people who are actually needing to live next to or in those developments, I think it's we're coming up to a very good time to actually look at the outcomes of those developments and the for current residents having big concrete boxes go up next door it's like that's not necessarily such a good thing and what about the the standard of the developments are we building stuff that is just locking people into uh High energy footprints, I know of some cases in um that have in moreland they've got uh the Energy Foundation in to review what they were doing, and they're really stuck with all you can do to make this place livable is to put in an air conditioner, so you're locking in high energy usage so there's stuff is being built now that it seems that the primary concern is how much the developers are making they're cramming lots of units onto a small footprint there or the they're not sorry so they are cramming lots of developments into a footprint. So they're cramming a lot more dwellings than was originally the suburbs were designed for. So there's a lot more residents and we're not necessarily putting in uh transport to get those people around. They don't have necessarily have access to parks, all sorts of, of those amenities. And the developers kind of go, well, that's your problem, council. You deal with that. We'll put in a no parking residential thing, aren't we good? And But we're doing that because the greater community has put in public transport options, but we're just going to walk away and go, oh, job well done. And the, the greater community has to uh, catch what are the consequences of those developments. And really, as a community, we need to look after the needs of the people Both who are next to and within those developments, rather than just letting a developer cram as many people in with as cheaper construction with little thought to the actual environmental cost of living in those units, we really need to be, have a much more holistic approach to what is being developed. How are those people integrating into the community once they're, you know, residents? What, do they, how, what are their needs and how are those needs being met? And it's probably a good time, actually, to take a step back and look at the outcomes of a lot of the development that's been happening. And it's quite different across the municipality, like the issues of people in Faulkner, probably a bit issue, different to the issues of people in Brunswick, just because the nature of the developments are different. But the underlying themes of what's happening is the same, and we really need to prioritise the community rather than prioritising who's going to make a quick buck out of this.
0: Oh yeah, I was going to pass it on to
3: Chloe to ask. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was going to ask you a question, Pauline, but I think you 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 have summed it up what you were saying last but i'll still ask it um you mentioned before you were talking about how council are the ones doing the actual work with the community you know like encouraging and working with people to reduce their carbon footprint and i was just wondering what other issues do you believe council should push for and take responsibility for uh, you know issues that should be more community-based Seeing as there are, you know, quite a few issues that are under the control of the state government, like public transport, for instance.
6: I think there's a number of lines that the council could take from what I have uh, been, when I've been sort of on Zooms talking to people and sort of not so much out and about talking to people, but the, with this whole pandemic and what COVID-19 has brought out is really emphasised to me how important community development is for our community like it's not just for you know people over in poor countries somewhere else it's actually really important for all of us living here now and so I think one of the really important things that Moreland Council could and should be doing, is supporting the community groups that do that community development work, often around food security, often around housing security. It's uh, people supporting the people in their neighbourhood. It's those community networks that strengthen a community and give it a resilience such that when something happens, people lose their jobs, people lose their... So, you know, these sort of disasters happen. They've actually got a network that is already in place that help can flow through. Setting up a network to support people after the disaster has happened is never going to work. You need to have that stuff in place And the people in charge, the the organisation or whether it's council level, state government, need to know about those community networks in order to use them and utilise them. As you can see what happened in the tower blocks, those networks were there. The state government was like, oh, I don't know, we'll just send in the police. And it's like you just need to have those networks in place. So community development even for established suburbs, is actually really important. Um, supporting people to take steps in their own homes, their own units, apartments, in order to reduce their carbon footprint is really important. So that's stuff that the council can be doing. That actually helps people's hip pocket, the, the financial bottom line. But the council also, there's a number of things that the council could and should be doing around being organised in with other councils so that they can take those higher level steps that, uh, we, we really can't afford to keep pushing off. Oh, climate emergency. You as an individual, you do that. You take a few less plastic bags. You, you know, cut down on your meat. Everything will be fine. If only we actually need to start organising and advocating for the the systems that the community comes together under, things like councils, state governments, to actually start stepping up and to really address, to take very firm, very strong steps in order to safeguard our community, safeguard our environment. So we need these two, uh, two strategies, two steps. You can't, it can't all be the individual. It can't all be just the government, you people over there do something. It needs to be this stance between individual responsibility, but also collective responsibility. So that's, and, and one of the things about the collective responsibility thing, one of the issues that I actually will really want to push on council, it's a bit, unsexy but governance actually looking into what are we doing are we doing a good job what are the outcomes what are we looking at how do our outcomes compare to other areas other councils other cities and then what are we going to do to put into place to uh benchmarking involves not only how are we doing but then what are we going to do differently that's that process of continual improvement that a lot of people kind of get a bit eye-rolly about but if you don't have those sort of systems embedded in your how you go about the work that you do then you just end up going off on tangents we really need a system of overview. Checking back with what is the council doing? Is this getting the outcomes that we want? So, and then if not, then what can we do? If it is, then that's great. We should make a big song and dance and celebrate that. And if it's not, we need to fine tune what we're doing. And that process, that system of, it's a quality assurance system cycle. And that thing of governance is actually really critical. To get the outcomes that we we all deserve in this city.
0: Yeah, and I guess following on from that, Pauline, um, I guess I want to hear. Can you tell us, I guess, a bit more about the election platform that um, you are running on with um, the Sue bolton morland team? Like, what are the kind of issues you're going to be camping campaigning on and taking to the council election uh, come October 24th, which has been confirmed? Uh, just for the listeners information, uh, will be confirmed to be going ahead, uh, despite the, um, the whole COVID um, pandemic we're, we're currently facing in, um the, um, the case of Melbourne.
6: So one of the things I guess that w- I just spoke about then is governance and I think that's a really important, uh, one to be standing on and taking to the, the election. Um, For me, I guess its environment is really critical, is crucial. Um, The Moorland Council has made some good first steps, but we really can't afford to rest on our laurels. We really need to crank up what we are doing around uh, climate emergency. Part of... um, There's a, a... an issue all over the municipality really about toxic waste, about um, industrial waste. It's probably a little stronger in the north of, well, actually it's not really stronger. Brunswick has a long history of industrial uh, use. There's a lot of um, old factories and things around Brunswick. There's things like uh, the dry cleaning that occasion that thing where the um there was a development on an old dry cleaning site and the whole ground was just riddled with toxic toxic waste just poured onto the the ground because of the industry that had been there before so there's a whole lot of um issues around that about the how the community and how the council keeps uh Records of what is the historic usage of land and how that is actually going to be affect what developments can happen into the future. Um, Plus, uh, there's actually there is and becoming and there should be a Melbourne wide. Uh, network around actually dealing with toxic waste because when there's a big toxic fire in Campbellfield, that smoke doesn't stop at the boundary of Moorland. That blows all over Moorland. The same thing down in Footscray when that f- fires go up down in Footscray, the that smoke goes all over Moorland. The trucks that carry the waste to and from all of these dodgy depots, they travel. Through all of the city, all of the suburbs that will go through Moorland. It's those sort of, you know, we've just, we've been playing with chemicals that have, over the last 50, 70 years, we have come up with a whole lot of chemicals and putting them together in a whole lot of different ways and the, the chemical consequences of that It's like before the event, before you start mixing up all these different things, you actually, it's not possible to know what it's going to be the downstream consequences of those industrial um, activities. Now we know, now we really need to make sure that those consequences are actually dealt with and mitigated against and people are protected against. So the whole issue of toxic... Uh, waste and how we deal with waste is a huge issue both for the state it's really all over the state and so it's an issue for everybody in moorland as well community involvement is one of the other things that i'm really passionate about and really keen about getting people to getting people involved in what is happening in the city so getting people to uh Getting the, that crowdsourcing wisdom of the crowd thing happening when looking at policy, so that if you do a, a a good community engagement issue over things that is coming up towards the council, you get all these different perspectives and all these people kind of go, oh, but what about this thing? And it's like if you proofread a document you're reading, go yeah yeah that's fine, and then somebody else will look at it and go, oh, but there's these problems. So we need to take that strategy and apply it to pretty much everything that the council is doing, because not only do you get those fresh eye approach, but you also get, but for this group of people, this has these, this will have these consequences. So you can snip off those unintended consequences so much earlier, uh, And there's been a number of things that have happened in Moreland that you think, well, if you had just asked people, they probably would have identified that there were problems that they're going to people are going to push back against. So it's it's again, you you need to not only have a good policy, but it actually needs to be useful and usable. And the best way that you can do that is to actually talk to people about what's happening, so that community engagement, community involvement. Getting feedback from the community, getting their input, uh, so that you can fine tune what it is that you're doing. It's that quality cycle again that you, you can't just go off on your own little ivory tower. It needs to be a workable solution for actual people. So that community involvement really ties in with the governance issues that I was talking about earlier. Um, so I guess those are the two things that really I'm really very um keen on committed to the environmental side of, so the, the green, the environmental side of things, both carbon and toxic chemicals, those sort of all those uh, environmental issues. There's been a lot of issues around noise and things at the moment in Moreland. So how are we measuring these things? What standards are we using? Are we meeting those standards? If those standards are not being met, what is the, what is the comeback for the people who are there who have to suffer through the consequences of standards not being met? And if people are being kept awake at night, then maybe the standards aren't good enough and we need to address that. So there's that environmental stuff that I'm really very, that's what I want to do. And then there's the social side. There's that quality assurance, that governance side of are we doing a good job for the people who actually live here, the people who are putting their trust in us to do the things that we need to happen in order to get the best outcome for all of us, not just the people that are here alive at the moment, but actually all of the people that are going to be coming through our city and are going to have to live with whatever it is that we do. So those are the two strongest um, planks, I guess, in the platform that I'm really very fired up about.
0: Yeah, so I guess that um, this is sort of our best, the last kind of question I want to ask, and we can sort of leave some room for kind of any final comments. Um, One of the things that um, Sue Bolton is known for as a kind of local councillor is she takes up both um, the local and the broader kind of political issues. And I guess I want to hear your comment, I guess, especially since we're living through quite an interesting kind of time right now with the COVID-19 kind of pandemic, um, especially in how it's disproportionately impacting, um, this pandemic is disproportionately impacting on on the poor and the marginalised. But then there's also the other issue, and this relates kind of heavily to the climate, Um this, um, you know, the one of the whole, the whole kind of agenda of the federal government, uh, in terms of a kind of post COVID kind of recovery plan is to essentially build more, uh, gas fields, um, to build more kind of fossil fuels. Essentially, you know, the governments aren't taking any lessons from this to actually as a reason to reduce carbon emissions loss. They're going straight into building more and more fossil fuels. So I guess I just want to hear your kind of comments and your perspectives on some of the broader kind of political issues, especially in terms of um, um, today.
6: So I guess I would say that Sue's, um, the way Sue does tie in the bigger picture theory and the bigger picture analysis, I guess, rather than theory into local issues is really Inspiring because I think it needs to happen. You need to have an analysis of why stuff is happening in order to actually address the root cause rather than just putting out spot fires all the time. So you, you actually need to have a a way of looking at the big picture in order to address the small picture thing. So for example, with um, the What's happening with the, the the COVID, the pandemic, and things at the moment? The if with the system of uh, everything being privatized, and there's a system of basically the security system being, and the nursing system too, to a certain extent, being predicated on the um, there being people who are at I'm sorry, I'm just the, stumbling on the words. So there are people that are at because those people don't have permanent employment. They are vulnerable to needing to get as many shifts as possible, and so you have people that are moving around to different workplaces to try and, and get up the hours that they need to be able to keep themselves and keep their food food on their plates. So the whole system of privatisation and moving away from actually having a a workforce that works for you and just getting in casual staff because, like, you can just get them in and then when you don't want them anymore, just let them – just don't get them in. You get up a whole lot of situations where those people moving about through different – lots of different workplaces – is just a nightmare in a pandemic and it will just increase the likelihood that things will go catastrophically wrong. It's not necessarily going to guarantee that things will go wrong, but when they do go wrong, they will go really,
4: really? wrong.
6: And having a system where uh, all this outsourcing, where your staff are outsourced to agencies and being moved around to a whole lot of different things it's it's that analysis of actually privatization and privatizing uh businesses moving them out from the the public view where we can actually have decent standards working conditions for people actually offer people permanent jobs so that they don't have to be I don't I can't afford to take a day off because I don't have sick leave like that is just a disaster in a pandemic um so the, to be able to have those different, that wider view, um and to see it being at, played out in individual small, you know, workplaces, situations where people, uh, actually live, that's really critical and really inspiring. And it gives you a, a framework that you can um, look at a lot of different things and actually look at the root problems, I would say.
0: Yeah. Thanks for that. I guess, Pauline, I guess um, maybe to um, conclude, I guess this interview, um, do you have any like final comments you'd like to add?
6: I think what Sue does with actually being open to and responsive to community members has been really inspiring for me. She, I was talking to some of my neighbours and that I was, you know, running for Sue Bolton and they were sort of saying, uh, yeah, but that time when the council did that thing, the other councils were like, oh, what can you do? But Sue actually took up the issue and actually addressed it and actually did something. And I think that that is really... Uh, half of why I'm running like I could you know I could have gone and joined so I'm standing as an independent I could have chosen to go and join a political party and stand on my um, with my values and uh, what I think should be happening but a standing as an independent with someone like Sue Bolton on that team means that we are able to to be more responsive to people being open to people and actually be a bit of a new eyes and clean broom through the council as well so that's um it's actually we're standing for an open and transparent council that all the stuff i'm talking about governance it's about openness and transparency and being seen what's happening and being open to critiquing and thus being able to be responsive to the residents so I think that would be my why the underlying pinning of why I'm standing thank you
0: thank you very much um Pauline I um thanks for that um just for listeners information, um, you're listening to Green Left, um, radio and we'll just do an, uh, interview, we're just talking with, um Pauline Galvin who is running as a lead candidate for the South Ward for the Morland Council as part of the Sue Bolton Morland team for the upcoming council elections on the 24th of October. Although the council election will technically start on the 6th of October because I think that's when people are going to be getting their ballot packs um, in terms of being able to kind of vote. Okay, I'll just be playing a quick announcement uh, and we'll move on to, I guess, the next part of the program.
1: Isolated? Quarantined? Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid NARM is a new mutual aid group of organised volunteers. We're here, we're queer, and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify, nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. Put in a request for help and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you, help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, find us on QueerAidMelbourne.org, or search for us via Facebook, COVID-19 Queer Aid Nam, Melbourne. So tell your family and your friends, and don't forget your neighbours. That's QueerAidMelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter.
0: Okay, you're listening to Green Left Radio and um, we're getting to, I guess, the end of our program. I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week and um, hope to see um, you all next week um, where we discuss more of the latest on activist campaigns and struggles against oppression. So, yeah, um, stay tuned for Beyond Zero Emissions, which I'm pretty sure follows after this program.
1: (coughs) This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit.
0: If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from your village.
2: Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt, now thunders and at last ends the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions, servile masses, arise. arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that